Why, do, why don't we make a start then? Uh, thank you all for coming and a very warm welcome to our, to our guests uh, today and to, for this very special event on a, on a fascinating book. Paul Tucker, uh, who is the chair of the Systemic Risk Council and a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, thank you, Paul, for taking the time to, uh, to come back to uh, Europe and tell us about a very important topic um, on, on, on the powers of central banking and how we need to think about them given the financial crisis, given what we've seen. Um, to discuss the book today, uh, we also have two very distinguished guests, John Kellerman, who is the former member of the Single Resolution Board, and before that, the Dutch Central Bank, the board of the Dutch Central Bank, and Jean Pisani-Ferry, who is a Mercado Senior Fellow here at Bruegel, amongst other things. <laughs> so thank you all for, for coming. We will take 20 minutes about for the presentation. Then uh, uh, John will start the uh, discussion for about 10 minutes, and, and, and Jean also 10 minutes before we open up the floor for a more general discussion. And with that, Paul, thanks again, and the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, and thank you, thanks to all of you for giving up your lunchtime. And there are plenty of familiar faces of good friends um, here, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful um, for that. The, you can see that the subtitle of the book is The Quest for Legitimacy in Central Banking and the Regulatory State. Now, I'm gonna, okay, I'm going to offer an alternative. Um, ah. I, I think in some respects, were it not necessary to sell books, which it is if you're writing them, um, the subtitle might have been How Technocracy Should Retreat to Preserve Our System of Government and for its own sake, its own contribution to, to welfare. The, the book is in, it's a rather dry intervention in the debate about technocracy versus populism, Con conceived as such um, before the election in the United States in 2016, before the Brexit um, referendum in 2016, but born of a concern that, that was felt by a number of people in the Bank of England over many years, but weighed heavily with me when the Bank of England was redesigned after the crisis, that um, unelected power holders should not have too much power, and that if they did end up holding too much power, um, that would not only lead to their losing power, which is kind of a self-interested thing, but actually would um, eat away at um, the legitimacy of our system of, of government. That, that's what the book is about. I, I want the technocrats to retreat. It's not that I think independent agencies are a bad thing. It's certainly that not that I think that expertise doesn't exist or shouldn't be valued, but that I think under our system of government, representative democracy, it should be constrained. My, my, my book is about delegation to independent agencies in healthy um, democracies. It's, it's that conditioning assumption of healthy democracy is tremendously important for where I'm where I'm going. Um, it will also mean that I have some quite complicated things to say about delegation within the um, EU. So, so, so that's, that, that's the basic thesis of the book, that we, that we risk going too far. In some respects, we may have gone too far in some of the major um, jurisdictions. In other jurisdictions, perhaps not far enough. And that the, the, the solution is what I call principles for delegation. Um, which, which, if you like, would be a political norm, um, possibly um, enshrined in law in some jurisdictions, possibly um, operating as a soft norm in others. An important point to make about these principles for, dele principles for delegation 
is that they go beyond a certain kind of liberalism. They take liberalism um, as necessary, but not as, as sufficient. One of, the, one of the running themes of the book is trying to recover our Republican values, but whereby Republican, I, I, I mean kind of representative um, democracy, um, power vested ultimately in the, in the people. The, the, the book was prompted by the accumulation and exercise of power by central banks during and after the, the crisis. Central banks are rather strange things. Um, they, they, they latently have fiscal powers. Any, any central bank latently has um, fiscal powers. Um, and of course, with, with fiscal policy largely switched off in the response to the crisis, so central banks, all the big central banks, um, the ECB and the Federal Reserve edged closer to some conventional borderline between um, fiscal policy and monetary policy. For the cognoscenti amongst you, it's probably worth saying that I, I don't believe there is an, an, a neat analytical divide between fiscal policy and monetary policy. I, I believe that our societies choose um, to establish conventions of dividing power between the fiscal authority elected and the monetary um, authority um, unelected. Um, if that weren't enough, and that was kind of a big deal, and I don't regret the things that I was involved with, I think um, what we did in the Bank of England, what was done at the ECB and the Federal Reserve, more importantly, helped to um, um, avoid the Western world revisiting the 1930s. But nevertheless, this was in close to the border, um, sometimes over the border of the monetary fiscal um, divide. But if that weren't enough, um, all the big central banks got given more regulatory powers and supervisory powers. And, and that, um, in a kind of intellectual sense, that means that the standard justification for an independent central bank, purely in terms of monetary policy, the time consistency problem in monetary policy, can't suffice. And debates about central banking need to be opened up to the debates about the regulatory state and the legitimacy of the regulatory state. And they, they, those have tended to be segmented debates, one dominated by economists, the other dominated by um, legal scholars and political scientists. Um, why does legitimacy matter? Um, I mean, it matters for many reasons, but, but if one thinks of it in consequentialist terms, it matters because it, it helps to make the system of government um, resilient. The, and the reason that matters is because any, anybody who is a citizen, and perhaps even more anyone who has served in any part of government, knows that eventually government um, makes mistakes, um, sometimes big mistakes, sometimes persistent mistakes, that just delivering better results um, can't suffice. When, when government fails, it's important that um, the system of government isn't thrown Overboard. Representative democracy does this in a rather brilliant way of separating how we feel about the government of the day from how we feel about the system of government. And of course, it does that in the very basic sense of that when government fails and when the other side better, um, we vote out the failing government and we vote in the other side. Well, no one could vote me out. Um, I, had, I had tenure and job security. Um, and the same is true, of course, in the ECB and the Federal Reserve and the, and the others. And, and the same is true of many independent agencies, and the same is true of 
judges, many of whom have become much more activist over the past 20 or 30 or 40 um, years. I mean, behind this lies a view, and I think it's a fact, that our conceptions of constitutionalism, which date back to the 18th and in Britain, um, 17th century, sometimes the 19th century, um, they don't really provide a place for the administrative state, let alone for different distance, different degrees of insulation from elected power. The, the German basic law is, is a rare exception in this respect. It does make provision for the administrative state and is absolutely clear on the matter. It makes absolutely clear that um, the administration shall be under ministerial um, control. I mean, actually, the interesting question about Germany, which I will pursue today, is whether that's de facto true. It's in all my experience of dealing with um, German agencies over 25 or 30 years, and I'm not referring to the Bundesbank, um, which is somewhat different. <laughs> Sorry? Oh, independent agency. Independent agency, which I'm going to define in a, um, in a, in a, in a second. I'll define it now. So by IA, independent agency, I mean an agency that is insulated from the day-to-day -day politics of both elected branches of government. And I'm using the, the word branch to apply to the elected government, executive government, and parliamentary systems. Um, there are kind of three markers of independence, control over delegated policy instruments, job security for the policymakers, and budgetary autonomy, or at least not having to go back and renegotiate your budget every year. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think that um, there are many agencies that should not be independent for reasons I, I will come on to. So here's, the, my definition matters a lot in the United States, and I think if I give some examples from the states, it will help to see why it matters. So people will typically refer to the Securities and Exchange Commission, the um, Federal Trading Commission, Communications Commission as independent agencies. And, and that's because that's a term of art in the states amongst legal scholars, um, um, meaning that the president can't get up in the morning and sack the policymakers, the commissioners. Um, but, but all of those bodies are subject to annual budget appropriations in, in Congress. And, and all of them, I mean, I, I've probably known every chair of the SEC since the mid-80s, and they are highly sensitive to shifting sentiment and opinion in Congress, because Congress can say, well, you're not going to spend any money on X, and you will spend money doing, doing um, this. The, the Consumer um, Finance Protection Bureau, which was created by Dodd-Frank, is an independent agency on the definition I just gave. But, but in my view, it should not be. It doesn't satisfy the principles that I'm going to outline. That's, that's not saying I dislike or like the substance of what they've done. I'm making a point about in constitutionalism. The Fed and the FDIC are independent agencies. In the UK, um, the Financial Conduct Authority, the UK went from having almost no independent agencies to having lots and lots and, and lots, some of which do not meet my criteria for delegation, and, and some of which could, could be repaired and some of which could not, given the nature of their mandate. I will come on to that. In, in, in the EU, the EU is kind of um, a special case, um, partly because it, it has, in my view at least, an incomplete um, 
um, constitutional um, setup. But of course, kind of one of the most important things about the EU is that although there are these um, almost independent agencies now, ESMA, EBA, um, and the insurance one, uh, whose level two rules have to go via the council and the parliament, which I think is on balance a, a good thing by the lights I'm going to set out. Because of the Moroni doctrine, their, their rules are, of course, always issued by the commission. And it is almost impossible to, to see the extent to which the commission um, exercises leverage over um, those um, agencies. And I, I think that's kind of problematic, um, actually, because it's not as though the commission is an especially expert body in the bits that I've um, dealt, dealt with, not technocratically expert. What it's expert at is building bridges from technocratic expertise to the politics of the council and the parliament. It's, it's, it, it is most certainly expert um, in, in that. Now, if you go back to the 1940s, when the US embarked on this journey of independent agencies, the justification was always expertise. Famously, in, in um, books by James Landis, who was one of the architects of the New Deal commissions and later an advisor to um, President, President Kennedy. But expertise cannot be uh, a sufficient warrant for insulating an agency from day-to-day -day politics, because you could set up an agency um, with insulated members who give advice to elected ministers, but, but with the decisions being taken by, by ministers. I mean, expertise matters, but expertise can't ground um, delegating decision. Um, taking. The, something that I think does cross over nicely from the monetary policy world to other fields is where you want um, insulation in policy making is when you have a deep problem of, of credible commitment. The politicians are going to be running for re-election. They will, they will um, give greatest weight to welfare today or the day after tomorrow rather than to some self-proclaimed objective or, or or promise, whereas the technocrat, if if you can harness her or her, his personal, professional, public reputation to delivering um, a delegated mandate, they are much more likely to um, stick to the promises that have been made. And there are, there are nice papers by um, Alberto Alessina and Guido Tablini on that. But the problem with with just stopping there, is the whole of government is riddled with problems of credible commitment. This is why Alan Blinder wrote his article in Foreign Affairs in 1997, I think, saying, well, why, why don't we have Federal Reserve-type structures in plenty of other fields? I can never quite decide whether Alan is saying this tongue-in-cheek or kind of really means it. And actually, I think both. I think he does kind of really means it, but knows it can't happen, and so it's tongue-in-cheek, or, or perhaps the other way around. So let me, let me um, go quickly through the delegation criteria, and you must tell me when to speed up. And then I'm going to say some tough things, um, which I believe to be true, about the desperate position in which the European Central Bank finds itself through no fault of its, of its own, or largely not through its own fault. So I'm going to say something about um, criteria for whether to delegate for how to delegate, and then for combining um, missions. And th this matters in terms of the debate about whether the ECB um, should also be the bank supervisor. And I, I will 
I will offer an argument about why people, to put it in strong words, should not listen to German arguments on this, or should listen with a um, only understanding the special constitutional circumstances of, of, of Germany, which I think distort what they say about this debate. So, I, I, the weather criteria, and these are going to sound anodyne, but I don't think they are, is, first of all, there should be broadly settled um, public preferences. There should be consensus across society around this. And the best example, I think, why this isn't anodyne is if you think about environmental policy in, in the United States and indeed outside the United States, there is a great deal of disquiet at the moment about the policies being pursued by the Environmental Protection um, Agency. But the truth is that it's got a lot of support within the United States. Um, as well. There are not settled preferences around environmental policy in the United States, at least. And it is not an independent agency. It is under presidential control. And that strikes me, whatever I happen to think about the substance of the policy, in terms of democratic legitimacy, that strikes me as a good thing. Whereas I don't think, in terms of how I spent my adult life, there's a constituency out there for high and variable inflation. I think there was when I was, well, I was born in 1958, I think in the 1960s, people thought actually, you know, we, need, we should allow more inflation, we may get more growth that way. This was, preferences changed as, as people thought they learned more about the world. Even more so, I don't think there's a constituency out there that says, um, we need more financial instability. We need, we need, we need more financial crises or, or, or we need them to be bigger when they, when they come around. I mean, I think that there's a fairly settled um, um, preference around financial stability. Um, whether one can delegate it is another matter. I've talked about problems of credible commitment. The reason, of course, why that um, can't be sufficient is that it's deep in our values that we wouldn't want to give unelected people the power to make big choices over distributional issues or questions of, of high value. Um, the how um, um, criteria, I'll mention, I'll mention two. The, both do a, a lot of work in different ways. The, the, the first is um, that the independent agency should be set a clear objective um, that is monitored. So this means not having vague objectives and it means not having multiple equally ranked objectives with no guidance from elected politicians about how to trade them off against each other. Why? Because if you have vague objectives or if you have multiple um, objectives equally ranked, then the office holder, the unelected office holder, is basically deciding high policy rather than high policy being decided um, by elected politicians. The, the, the second um, is um, decision should be taken by one person, one vote after deliberation. I, I, that's kind of welfare type reasons. It probably produces better results, but it's also to disperse um, power and it helps to reveal dis disagreement, which helps public oversight and debate and accountability. I think the governing council of the ECB is too big for deliberation. And there are people in the room that would know better than me, but I've known many members of it, and when they describe it, it doesn't sound like a deliberative body, where if, if, if Jean says something, or if I say something, Jean might come in and say, no, no, Paul, you can't say that. That's just wrong. Well, I was on a body of nine where, where, where that happened to each of us. I mean, it was truly deliberative. 
rather than reading out scripts written by um, staff um, beforehand. I think the FOMC in the United States borders on being too big to be deliberative. And there'll be people in the room who've talked to members of the FOMC over the past 25 years, and I, I think that seems to be more or less the, the, the case. Um, let me, we might come back to emergencies. Emergencies is a very big thing indeed. I'll talk about multi, multiple mission agencies when I get to central banking. Let me say something about prudential supervision by way of setting this up. So here's the thing, and it's quite surprising really, and I feel a bit of discomfort about this when I look back at most of my career, thank God not the last part of it, which is that it, it, isn't, it, is, it is doctrine amongst um, financial regulators and central bankers that bank supervisors should be independent. They should be insulated from politics. And when I say this is doctrine, I don't mean soft doctrine. This is in the Basel core principles for banking supervision. It is in the IOSCO principles for securities regulators. More importantly, it is, it is occasionally part of IMF conditionality. And yet supervisors, until after the latest crisis, would insist that they couldn't talk publicly about what they did um, because that was confidential information about individual banks and dealers. And if they revealed it, um, that could bring about the very problems, social costs that they were trying to avert. So this is a world where people were saying, make us insulated from politics, but we can't tell you what we are doing. This, this was outrageous, um, and it should not have been... Um, allowed. Um, and I think it partly explains why when there have been supervisory mistakes, people get so angry. Um, because actually the people that have set themselves up above the people with a capital P, if you don't deliver, then you get the full force of, of people's um, anger. Um, so let me say some things about the ECB, and then I'll say something about banking supervision. So I say three things. Um, so the true power of the state, sovereignty, and actually that's a word I try and avoid in the, in, in the book, lies with whoever wields the power to act in emergencies. If then in an emergency the elected executive steps aside, um, leaving an independent agency, say the ECB, to act alone, they are revealed as the true sovereign, the economic sovereign, an accidental economic sovereign. I think the ECB is simultaneously more and perhaps less than a regular central bank. I think it's less than a regular central bank because it is gravitated to a position where the members of the governing council vote according to their national interests rather than according to the outlook for the euro area. As a, as a whole. Of course, they, I don't think anyone does that consciously. These are good people. But if you look at the pattern of votes in the ECB has leaked over many years now, it is a remarkable coincidence between the South votes one way and the North votes the other, and that should, that should bother us as, as citizens. Um, monetary technocrat, I mean, the ECB essentially are monetary technocrats adrift in the constitutional order of things precariously perched as existential guarantors. Hence the legal and political dilemmas posed by the ECB's Sisyphus-like labors to preserve Europe, Europe's monetary union and the wider project it, it represents. I mean, I think they're in an absolutely impossible position as the only body that has um, quasi-fiscal um, powers. Let me say something about um, supervision 
and 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 the ECB. It is a fact of central banking that central banks can create money, and in societies that allow commercial banks, fractional reserve banking, as economists call it. Um, and I think we allow that. I think we allow fractional reserve banking for good reasons. I think the political economy justification is that it separates the allocation of credit from the from the state. I think that's a big thing to defend. Um, but these entities are fragile. Um, they can suffer runs. Central banks are essentially insurance companies or reinsurance companies. They provide re liquidity reinsurance to to the um, banking system. Well, if you do that, you are inevitably at the scene of the um, disaster. And if you are inevitably at the scene of, of the disaster, you, want, you need to be able to judge um, the soundness, the solvency of the firms that are failing in circumstances where you may not want to rely on an external supervisor because these are circumstances in which the external supervisor has probably failed. Um, and it means you also have a stake in the standard of resilience that is set in regulation and um, in the quality of, of, of supervision. This was best summed up by Paul Volcker two or three years after he retired from being chair of the Fed. If if, for those of you in the room that don't follow central banking, if you only ever read one speech, one piece of paper about central banking, it should be this speech by Paul Volcker. I remember reading it when it came out and thinking, oh, wow. And just look at the words. I, this is 1990. I insist that neither monetary policy nor the financial system will be well served if a central bank loses interest in or influence over the financial system. Well, the Fed lost interest in the financial system under Alan Greenspan, and the Bank of England lost influence over the financial system because its powers were taken away in 1997. So people certainly weren't listening to Paul. Um, now, if, 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 if it's inevitable that central banks have an interest in and will seek in influence over the financial system, where my argument leads is that this should be formalized. And the challenge would come to some extent from Japan, or more importantly um, for us, from Germany and from um, the Bundesbank. And this is where I will end. So the, the Bundesbank um, um, famously opposes the SSM, the single supervisory mechanism, being part of the ECB, and, and are not displeased that a case is going through the German Constitutional Court up to the ECJ. Now, many years ago, I sat next to a probably the dominant um, Bundesbank president of, of, of recent years. By recent years, I mean, recent for me means the last 30, 35 years. Um, and, I, and I said to him, um, why is it that you don't um, accept being a supervisor, given that actually probably more of your, most of your staff work on supervision? Certainly more of your staff work on supervision than work on monetary policy. And, and he said, Helmut said, it's because we shouldn't be accountable for it. Were we to be accountable um, for it, it would pollute our, um, our monetary policy reputation. And what I have always regretted not saying is, explain to me why in Germany you can de facto have a responsibility and not de jure have it. In, in, I spoke in Paris yesterday. The, the French group I was speaking to agreed that, that in France, and certainly in Britain, and certainly in the United States, if, if you were actually responsible for banking supervision, you wouldn't be able to walk away from your parliament's displeasure 
um, when there was a problem. But of course, what's going on deep down isn't what's generally discussed. It's the specificity of the basic law. And I tried this out on some former Bundesbankers, including former general counsels recently, and they agreed. It's since the basic law bars, um, well, it mean, provides that the administrative state must be under, under ministerial control. Were the Bundesbank to be formally the regulator and supervisor, then the Bundesbank would combine a function that was insulated from politics with a function that was not insulated from politics. And I think it makes a lot of sense for them to resist that because politics is a brutal business. You do something where there's ministerial control over your right arm and they'll use it to get you to use your left arm in a certain way. And I think that argument is perfectly sound for the Bundesbank, but they should be honest about what's driving them and because actually it has no bearing whatsoever on whether the ECB should be the SSM because there is no such provision. Um, that there must be ministerial control of the administrative state in the EU treaties. I will stop there. Okay, Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Paul. A lot to discuss, actually. I'm hoping we can come back to some of this, but um, I'm going to resist the temptation of asking questions first, so I'll pass, I'll pass the word to Joanne. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for uh, having me here. I think uh, it's a very apt forum uh, to be uh, in Brussels, the, I would say the capital of unelected power, uh, probably. <laughs> I don't know if you agree, Paul, but... Um, um, and um, I'm very grateful uh, to you, Maria, for uh, asking me to uh, discuss this book, um, because it's been a great pleasure these past few days to work my way through the 568 pages. Uh, uh, it, is, it is not boring, Paul, not at all. It's, it's a fascinating read, actually, but it, it, it is quite a lot of work. 860 grams. Um, so... Um, uh, so I found it uh, impressive, I found it a profound quest, both on a personal level based on your ex unique experience, but also uh, based on extensive research and a wealth of literature. Um, but the most uplifting thing I found, uh, Paul, was that um, I would almost say despite your having been a technocrat for so long, you are still such a passionate Democrat. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and uh, I, I thought that that was, you know, that, that really uh, um, made it more than worthwhile. Uh, so, uh, the book dives into the question of whether central banks or independent agencies have become, in, in, in the words of the book, overmighty citizens, and it reflects on the role of unelected powers in democratic societies. Um, and it's, of course, a bit daunting to comment on a book that so elaborately and eloquently deals with this question, um, especially with the author sitting next to you. Um, so I will share some observations based on my personal experience, uh, having been an international lawyer, central banker, supervisor, and most recently uh, one of the founding members of the Single Resolution Board. Uh, and I will try to be brief, uh, Maria. So let me say that um, uh, first, uh, the questions posed um, uh, are, are very apt, but uh, Paul also brings very insightful answers uh, to questions that actually came to all of us in uh, though that were in central banks during the great financial crisis. It was. It has. It, it, it's. These are questions that have kept me 
awake at night as well. Maybe those questions did not come in the heat of the moment, during the days and the nights and the weekends that we were just frantically trying to save banks, provide liquidity, and generally prevent the financial system from collapsing. I was here in Brussels during those harrowing Fortis weekends, um, when the Belgian, the French, the Luxembourg, and the Netherlands governments, and central banks and finance ministries um, tried to save Fortis and stabilize the financial system. And at that time, no questions. We just did what we could. Um, but pretty soon thereafter, those questions came up. What did we do? Did we do it right? Uh, most of all, will we actually authorize um, the, the question of uh, legitimacy came very soon afterwards. Uh, and fairly soon, uh, we were no longer only asking ourselves, everybody was asking us. Um, uh, the, the press, the parliament, the public, they all did uh, pose these questions, and rightly so. So numerous investigations, committees, parliamentary inquiries, uh, investigative journalism, uh, litigation, uh, still ongoing, ensued. And that kept us also very busy for many years, uh, so we could all relive every step we took during those few hours uh, and those fateful nights and weekends. Um, and sometimes that was a bit more than we liked, but at other times um, it was also a very good thing. Looking back on it, I actually do think it was a good thing, although it was a bit painful every now and then. Um, so uh, I think all over the world, governments came up with different ways to implement the lessons of this great financial crisis. And in the Eurozone, the answer was um, the setting up of the banking union. Uh, and as you know, um, not just conceiving this unprecedented project, but also implementing it into legislation was a masterpiece of economic and constitutional legal creativity. Um, in short, because it was impossible to reopen the treaty, so everything had to be fitted into the existing legal framework. Um, and, um, well, in part one of the book, uh, Paul draws these principles for delegation and uh, the design presets. So today, of course, I'm greatly tempted to just, you know, put the banking union to the test, to assess against all the criteria, uh, the two pillars of the banking union that already exist, being the single supervisory mechanism, so the supervisory arm of the ECB, and the single resolution board, uh, just set them against these principles and see whether they meet the test. Um, but um, given the constraints I just mentioned, both politically but also in terms of timing, uh, that the, uh, the erection of these pillars was faced with, uh, I could certainly think of a few criteria where they fall short, and I'm sure you can as well. Um, so I will not do that, um, but I would rather focus on the question that is also so close to my heart, maybe because I was trained as a lawyer, and that's the legitimacy of an independent agency, a new agency in a new area like the Single Resolution Board. And uh, here I use legitimacy not uh, stricto sensu, uh, but uh, as, as in legality, but in the more broad sense 
uh, as it's done in the book, and I quote, that the, public that the public society as a whole accepts the authority of institutions of the state, including independent agencies, and their right to deploy the state's power. Now, to illustrate my concerns, uh, I'm, I'm going to raise just three points. I'm just going to highlight them because we don't have time to really go into anything. First of all, on, let's say, managing expectations. Um, the SRB is the resolution authority of the Eurozone, and its mission is to support financial stability by making sure that in the future taxpayers will no longer have to foot the bill for failing banks. So uh, to embody from bail out to bail in. At, at, at least I think those goals, the mission is clear. I think they're, you know, we meet the test. Um, so to do so, Interalia it collects contributions to the single resolution funds from the banks and currently that fund is over 25 billion euro and growing. It also has the power to implement the tools created by the BRD. And I, I just a little footnote here, I say the power. Uh, yes, there is a role for the Commission, there is a role for the Council in taking decisions, etc. It's very complicated, very elaborate, very creative system. Um, there is the Moroni Doctrine, I'm not going to go into all that, let's just focus on the broad picture. So, it has the power to implement those uh, resolution tools. So to decide when a bank needs to be resolved, and that at that point it can sell a bank, it can sell parts of the bank, it can create a, a separate bad bank with bad assets, uh, and it can bail in shareholders and creditors of a bank in trouble. Now those tools are all rather new. They've only been used sporadically, and in very few countries they've been actually used. Um, moreover, resolution as such is a topic that the general public is not very familiar with, and to be honest, uh, I'm not sure they're very interested either. Second element, crisis management, or as Paul calls it, emergency. Um, interestingly, I, I read somewhere in the book that um, central banks were, as it were, designed for emergencies. Now, I, I had to laugh a little bit because when I joined the central bank from private practice as a lawyer, that was not the first impression that I got <laughs> in 2005. <laughs> and I remember my first board meeting. Uh, I, was, um, uh, I was the general counsel then. Actually, the, the first board meeting, I was, uh, it was 10 to 6. The, the system was going to close. Uh, the payment system, and somebody came into the room, which was unprecedented. I mean, disturbed the board in their meeting. This was unheard of. And somebody said, well, we have this bank, and they can't pay, so we need to give emergency liquidity now. So I said, okay, I'll go. I know how to, you know, I'll draw up some collateral stuff. Well, I can do that. Uh, and I remember walking out of the room and now dwelling, shouting after me, Joanne, don't think that this is normal here. The last time we did this was 25 years ago. <laughs> okay, so so much for, but um, resolution authorities, by contrast, they are designed for emergencies. They become only visibly active in front of the eyes of the general public in a crisis. And since prudential supervision of banks is always carried out under the shroud of confidentiality, Often, the fact that the bank is in trouble will be a big surprise for the public. Um, 
So as described in chapter 16 of the book, the nature of the resolution authorities' activities require a very high degree of ex-ante design and uh, of rules on how it must act exactly in such situations. On the other hand, we all know that based by the complexity of the issue, as well as the nature of crisis management, this requires a high degree of leeway and flexibility. So in and of the, themselves, these two elements already uh, provide significant obstacles for the SRB to actively go out and seek a mandate, or in other words, to actively build a basis for legitimacy with the general public. And that difficulty is exacerbated um, as the SRB is a Eurozone agency, because what is the Eurozone? Um, uh, and um, it is, so it is a supranational agency, but the impact of its actions are felt in the member states nationally. Could be more than one member state, but it will still be felt nationally. Uh, and so voters will feel the impact nationally uh, and hold their national politicians to account. So that was one of the reasons, maybe, why it was so swiftly agreed to delegate these painful decisions upwards to the supranational level. But it also means that there is not necessarily an incentive alignment of the nationally elected politicians with the EU politi political institutions at the central level. Yeah, I will round off. Finally, the impact of the bail-in tool as such can be very big, as in fact bailing in shareholders and creditors is expropriation of property. And that clearly goes contrary to criterion five that forbids um, big choices on distributional trade-offs for agencies. So in conclusion, the SRB embodies what I would call, uh, with a reference to the trilemmas that are described by Roderick and by Schumacher, uh, the resolution trilemma, um, a cross-border financial system combined with a desire to shift from bail-out to bail-in precludes national control over resolution instruments. So I would like to leave you with that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jean. That's very, very, very interesting. And uh, thank you for bringing your experiences in. And uh, Jean, I think we should go straight to you uh, before we okay, good. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm also very happy to, not only because I so, you know, all over the years preparing the book, and but, but also because I think it's a very important and a very timely book. Um, you mentioned the paper by Alan Blinder. Uh, you didn't give the title. It was, Is Government Too Political? Uh, the 1997 paper. So 21 years ago. And essentially you were asking the, the question, you know, is government not political enough? Uh, and uh, we've, we've gone through 25 years of growing separation between policy and politics, and we're coming to the, the time where we're wondering, uh, you know, does it make sense? Have we gone too far? Have we done it in a, in a relatively careless way, which is basically your, 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 your point? Yeah. And you know, it's just to, we just have to, to look around us, you know, to listen to Michael Gove about uh, experts, or to, um, uh, to look at President Trump's attack on the appellate body of the WTO, which is a sort of form of uh, you know, uh, an elected power. Um, and even what's happening in Italy uh, resonates because you have, you know, it's not about an uh, independent uh, agency, but it's about the constitutional versus the political, the separation between 
those two uh, spheres and the, the delicate border between the two that uh, is being disputed between President Mattarella and the, uh, and the, um, the leaders of the, the, two, the two parties. So I think it's an extremely important and extremely uh, good question. Now, I have, I have one uh, thing I would regret is that it's a book about legitimacy. It's not a book about efficiency. Uh, there's a big question behind. Is it, is it, is it a system of government that delivers? Uh, so we're waiting for volume two, uh, which will be as big, I suppose, or even, <laughs> even bigger. Uh, now, on, the, on, your, on your two questions, and on, uh, I mean, you, you two, you know, the principles and then, then the more central banking part. Uh, I think you're, you're right to say that the, the, the good reasons for delegating, and I think we have good theories. You mentioned the Salesina. Uh, Tabellini, there's also the paper by Maskin and Tyrol, essentially, you know, arguing the same, in the same way. We have two types of technologies, and those two types of technologies are, uh, I mean, they have all the deficiencies for governments, and so, so elected governments can, can fail, then can, you know, pander, um, and technocrats can follow an agenda of their own and distantiate themselves from the, the preferences of the public. And since uh, there is, uh, you know, imperfect information all over the place, and uh, and citizens do not see through, uh, then nothing is perfect, and we have to check and define in each case what's the best uh, approach. Uh, and I think you know there, there are deep reasons also why we moved in this direction. Take public health. You know, uh, some time ago it was sort of considered normal that governments would uh, you know manage public health issues with uh, balancing them for other concerns other other reasons and it's simply unacceptable to to a society i mean we don't want any trade off we don't want the, the governments to balance the public health concern with i don't know uh, the the fate of the pharmaceutical industry or whatever um, we want we want the agency that focuses on public health to focus on public health only that's a demand of, of citizens. So it applies to a number of fields. So I think that there are deep reasons. Now, about the, the how, I think you're right to say that it has been done in a careless way uh, relatively uh, often. The UK less, let's recognize that. I mean, the UK has served as an example. And you know, the, the way the independence of the Bank of England uh, was introduced with this uh, sort of explicit contract, uh, the definition of price stability by the, by the chancellor, uh, the open letters, etc. That was a sort of elaborate reflection on how an independent agency can work and be accountable and, uh, uh, and, and be, be uh, compelled to transparency and, and how they, what the ultimate responsibility remaining with the government, the government having to be transparent also, etc. So I think uh, it was uh, done better in certain cases than in, in some others. And it's striking, though, the example you, you give about the US and the fact that you know, it has been done in a, in a very uh, careless way. Um, now, we have the dis discussion on, on, the, uh, on the EU. You spoke of the ECB. We could speak also of the, uh, of the Commission. We have a very strange animal. Uh, a commission that is in part an accountable, an institution that's uh, accountable to parliament that can be actually overthrown by, by, by parliament, and it happens. At the same time, it has independent powers, like for competition, like the competition and independent authority. So it's a completely hybrid um, uh, animal, and that's, that's right. 
Now, what I would sort of, in principle, um, perhaps criticize or question is the sort of idealism behind your call for uh, first principles, you know, detailed contract. There's sort of an illusion of a complete contract, uh, of, 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 of writing uh, down sort of everything so that uh, you're certain of uh, you know, what the independent uh, institution has to deal with and what would be uh, the uh, right response. Now think of the way we, let me take the example of the ECB, when the, uh, the, the treaty uh, was, was written. I mean, the notion that the ECB would have to have a mandate uh, for preserving the integrity of the euro area was simply not there. So it's an essential choice when uh, Mario Draghi said, we have a mandate to preserve the integrity of the euro area. It was his interpretation of the mandate. It was not written everywhere, anywhere. Uh, and I think that was essential. So, so the notion that you can actually uh, write down uh, and, and determine on the basis of those principles what exactly the agencies should do and, and what say, avoid the mission creep, I mean, this has limits. Now, on central banking, uh, I think you're, you're, you're asking a major question about uh, central bank independence. You're asking essentially if uh, central bank independence was the, the daughter of the great inflation and whether it's, uh, it's now passé. Uh, again, I think you're absolutely right to point out that the justifications that were given frequently are much too simpler. I mean, the, the role of the borrow golden model in uh, justifying the, uh, the um, independence of the central bank. Uh, that decision of this important have been taken and justified by such a simple model uh, is, is still uh, very, very striking. Uh, so so the, the question that uh, Larry Summers posed to, to you when you, you spoke to, to him and that, uh, um, uh, cannot be avoided. You know, is it a different, yeah, you, yeah. you have it on slide. Yeah, it's um, a bit of a good uh, line. Can we have a slide uh, back, please? Yeah. The, the, this question cannot be avoided. You know, I, I mean, in this new uh, environment, uh, should we consider that this, uh, this institutional arrangement is still is still valid? And some of the of the traditional uh, reasons that are given actually don't. Uh, if you want to, yeah. well, okay, well, it's on screen. <laughs> Um, some of the reasons actually can be can be questioned. You know the um, the way we think about uh, monetary policy, the way we think about the longer term implication and the distribution implication of monetary policy are clearly different from the way we thought about uh, about them uh, uh, ten years ago. I mean, we are we are much more conscious that there are distributional consequences, especially of of large scale uh, quantitative easing. Uh, policies, but also that uh, the whole question about uh, uh, what the do we know uh, what potential output is in, in our economy? Do we know um, the all the debate about the scars and about the um, uh, hysteresis uh, indicate that there can be longer term consequences of monetary policy? So this neat definition, it's all about stabilization, and uh, it can be we have a. a a simple model where there is money neutrality and uh, we have a sort of equilibrium, real equilibrium that 
that's determined independently. I mean, and and no distributional, uh, no major distributional, or only over the cycle, but not beyond the cycle. All that is to be has to be questioned. I would add something, perhaps that it's more of a political economy nature that central banks have changed consistency in the crisis. I mean, they are. They, uh, they were traditionally supported by the savers because they were protecting them against inflation. Now the savers tend to hate central banks because central banks uh, have kept interest rates so, so low. Uh, you know, just as the German savers. Uh, and at the same time, you had people who traditionally hated central banks who are now supporters of central banks. So what does it mean in terms of the fragility of these institutions? It can be a broadening of support, but also a shrinking because nobody is really satisfied and uh, and so there is no, uh, no support uh, anymore. Now, you're revisiting the argument for central bank independence, and I think that's, that's very important. Now, I'm not entirely convinced by, by all of them. You mentioned the fact that um, stability uh, you know, is something that on which there can be, uh, um, there can be stability and a relatively, uh, relative unanimity of preferences about financial stability. Well, just look at the controversy between the BIS and some other central banks. I mean, the, the major controversies about, uh, about the, the, the trade-off between financial stability um, and the, uh, I mean, the sort of more traditional macro or price stability um, uh, objective of the central bank. Um, that's uh, absent a macroprudential policies that solve the problem. And by saying there is another instrument, so you don't have to care so much about financial stability, which is not your view of uh, what central banking is about, there is a big question there. Uh, so uh, I mean, you, 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 you're going to be too quickly there. And your rebuttal of, of Summers uh, saying that um, you know, without the central bank independence, it would have been difficult to engineer uh, the, the stimulus, the overall uh, macro stimulus that was engineered post-2008, uh, is a bit strange because it entirely applies to fiscal policy. So actually you're giving an argument for the independence of macro policy rather than an argument about the, the independence of, of monetary policy. So um, perhaps I want to push you on, on, on this important uh, discussion. Uh, let me end on a point on which I would like to have you review. I was in a, a few days ago at Andre with the idea of Constancio Farewell. And I had an argument with Paul de Grau. Essentially, Paul de Grau says um, the reason why we have uh, stability of the bond market is that the central bank is not truly independent. That at the end of the day, uh, the investors know that if uh, the solvency uh, is to be questioned in the market, uh, government will step in and tell the central banks, uh, tell the central bank, uh, we are your, your shareholder, uh, we are the authority, and so you're going to uh, step in and uh, uh, avoid uh, us being pushed into uh, insolvency. Uh, that's a very important uh, issue because ultimately, you know, all the guarantees, all the discussion on uh, what the mandate and how far it goes, uh, is the question of if you push it to the limit, 
What does it mean? Thank you very much, Jean. Thank you very much. Thank you both. Uh, Paul, would you like to react quickly to this, and then it would be important uh, uh, to also get some questions. I, I, will, I will say just a few things. First of all, thank you both very, very much. Um, indeed. Joanne, you, you were dwelling rightly, I think, on the kind of federal aspects of certain delegated policy regimes. I was very conscious that I don't discuss the extra dimension of federalism very much, either for the EU or for the United States, nor, by the way, for either France or Britain, do I discuss the role of the mandarins. Do I, so there's a, in, in, in the wish to cover all the countries I've just mentioned, jurisdictions and, and Germany, which is itself a federal state, I, I abstract from some local specificities. And how much that qualifies the conclusions, I, I think, is open um, to debate. Um, I, I'm bound to reject one thing you, you, you say, which is um, idealism. And um, it's obvious that, that in my mind, I don't feel idealistic about it. It's also that, um, concretely, um, I completely agree with you, a complete contract can never be written. And that's why, although I didn't dwell on it today, I think the section on emergencies or, or crises is, the, is, in some respects, the most important part of the, the book. Um, and what I say there is what should be laid down ex ante is the process for what happens when an independent agency reaches the boundary of its legal powers, but latently has capability to do, to do more and to be the US cavalry. So, and, and, it, um, and this is should. So I, I think that Mario, before um, he rescued Europe, and I think he did rescue Europe, I, I think he should somehow have, have found a way of asking um, prime ministers, chancellors, in intergovernmental mode, whether they wanted their project to survive. So the way you characterize Mario's thing, which I think is correct, is that he interpreted his legal mandate. Um, and I, I think that, that what he was doing was deep politics and that he needed political endorsement for that. Now, I don't feel very critical of, any, uh, of, of that. My, my point, the point of mentioning it is these are the kinds of things that one should, one can build in ex, ex ante. It also means even when one isn't at the boundaries of one's legal powers, when one is about to use one's powers in a way that is, is fine under the letter of the law, and a judge will tick it up, but actually no one remotely contemplated in, in politics or in the public, then I think you need some kind of um, political um, sanction. Now that, this is why elsewhere in the book I discussed the distinction and the overlap between um, values of legal constitutionalism of, and of political constitutionalism. Um, the, oh, the slides have gone again, um, damn it. Uh, the, the, let me say one thing about defending central bank independence, because I want central bank independence to survive. And I don't think my defense relies entirely on rebutting Summers in the way that I do. And perhaps that doesn't work. I think it does. But um, I think there's actually a constitutional case for central bank, for monetary policy independence, which is very rarely made. Alberto Alessina, I think, is persuaded by it and said he hadn't come across it before, which is that 
it is the monetary policy instrument is latently an instrument of taxation. Um, and therefore, the one set of people that shouldn't hold it are the elected executive branch. This is what Simon de Montfort's rebellion against the English king is about in the 13th century. This is, this is the root of the separation of powers. So, well, then where's it going to go? It could be a committee of the legislature. That, that seems to me to be unrealistic. And the United States almost certainly unconstitutional with a big C. Of course, this question didn't arise during the gold standard. Um, because it was kind of on autopilot, and when the world came off the gold standard, that was always a parliamentary decision in, the, in Britain, and therefore for the rest of the world, Westminster Parliament was deciding for, for everybody. Now, I will assert that um, the volatility in output and jobs entailed by a commodity standard is, is not will not get allegiance and acceptance under full franchise democracy. The gold standard was, in my view, um, very much part of a, a property-owning democracy rather than a full-franchise democracy. So if that doesn't work, well, then you're left with, well, we better have somebody that's insulated from politics, and we better constrain them and incentivize them as best we, we can. So, so I, I've ended up thinking of monetary policy independence as a corollary of the separation of powers. Um, the, the, the final thing I would say is about... Um, about stability. Um, so, I think I think the BIS crowd make a very big mistake. I th I, uh, and uh, but but they're not alone in this. I think what's been going on in economics is it, too many people do positive economics without doing political economy economics, and so people will identify a missing regime and um, or a missing set of instruments of which there are plenty left. And we'll say, who'll be best at doing that? And in some narrow sense, and it's almost always going to be some wretched central banker. And there's this kind of default assumption. I basically have ended up thinking that the BIS is a lobby for ending central bank independence, because that's, I think, been the, the, the unintended burden of where they've been um, headed over recent years. I, I think it can be salvaged by, by narrowing the financial stability mandate of independent regulators of independent central banks to the resilience of the monetary system, not to trying to manage the credit cycle, not to trying to prick bubbles, because I think we don't yet know enough um, to write down an objective for that that could be monitored, whereas I think we do know enough to write down an objective for the resilience of the system. That, that can be monitored. And I think there's room for disagreement in that, but I think it's where the debate should be. It shouldn't just be about what other, you know, where can we identify welfare costs in our models? What's the friction? What's the instrument? We should then go on to the next question. Well, who should hold the instrument? And there is this reflex response that, oh, the instrument must never be held by finance ministries. And in a sense, I'm saying, well, why, why on earth not? We should accept some welfare sacrifices to get some legitimacy benefits. That's That's... That's what the book's core is, in a sense. Thank you. If I may start the questions, you know, if, if you were to change one thing at the ECB, you didn't have to worry about pretty changes and stuff like that, but what would you do differently? What would uh, you like the ECB to do differently? And you have to give me just one, not, not more. It would be a rhetorical thing. I think that rather than saying 
what governments should do, which has been the pattern. And it's not that I substantively disagree. It would be better and more, actually more effective and certainly um, better politics with a big P to say, well, we, can't, we can't deliver stability. We can do this um, rather than you, the governments, must do this. We all know what happened after the Jackson Hole speech. Very big politicians went around Europe, Davos and elsewhere, slagging off the ECB. One hears this from all the top journalists who were in Davos that period. But if you say, well, you know, we can do the stability thing, but we're not going to generate prosperity. We can't affect the trend rate of growth. We can't affect, we can't deal with inequality. I think actually a change in rhetorical tactics, and this, isn't, this is what the generation of Paul Volcker and Eddie George did time and again and again. When the case for monetary independence was being made, um, it, the claims for it were always modest. It's, if, you, if you have been the US cavalry, it is, it, is, it is very hard to take off your uniform and reveal yourself as, in fact, naked. OK, thank you very much. Well, let's, uh, let's collect questions and uh, <laughs> 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 Okay, well, well, let's start uh, from this side. Uh, who was raising some euros first? I don't know if I have a question, but I have two or three very quick uh, you know, observations. Very quick, if you please, because we have lots first of questions. Of all, I would say yeah, congratulations to Paul. It reminds me, you know, once uh, Galbraith said that uh, specialization uh, is a scientific convenience, but it's not a political virtue. I think your book has got this virtue, it has got both expertise, I think, and uh, now, the Eurozone's, the Eurozone, uh, say, story, having in mind was, uh, I was reading your book, is rather sad, because we have the case whereby uh, we had to rely on the ECB by the end of the day to the, um, yeah, to the European Court uh, to be able to sort out the difficulties that under normal circumstances it should be, you know, sorted out uh, by uh, the European politicians. And probably given my last point is the late Pado Siopa was saying that um, we have two kinds of power. One is limited power. That's good. And I think that's the case of the ECB. And we have weak power. And that's the case, I think, of our fiscal power. And that's a bad thing. The bad thing and the sad thing for the Eurozone. And I hope right now it's a case probably to restore, you know, and, and finish, you know, the structure that midway through the crisis. Thanks. Can I just say one thing in response to that? And, and I should have made this clear in responding to you, Marie, that my, 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 my book is less about central banks should do this, should do that, should stop doing this, should stop doing that, and more about legislators and elected politicians should step up to the plate. Someone said, who's the audience for your book? The technocratic audience. It's not central bankers. It's legislators and people that want to be legislators. And it's been too convenient for them to step back. And then the central bankers have no option but to step into the vacuum. And it's not that I criticize them doing so. I was part of doing that myself. It's that this, if this becomes the equilibrium, I worry, I can't prove, I worry that this is corrosive for our system of government. So let's take uh, maybe Francesco. Um, take on the front, then these three questions, and then we'll come back here. 
Francesco first, then Lars, and then well, Thank you very much. Um, I will ask you something about the ECB. You would not be as surprised about that. Well, you know about it, whereas I don't, of course. <laughs> um, now, I, I agree with you uh, with the fact that, that the ECB was uh, tasked with excessive responsibilities during the crisis to salvage the euro. Uh, but where maybe we have a different view is whether this uh, was uh, the consequence of the fact that, that, that the Maastricht design was incomplete and a completion of the design can obviate uh, this for the future, or whether it's an intrinsic uh, kind of uh, problem that it would not be possible to, to solve. I mean, I can read your 500 pages and probably I would find the answer, but if you have a sneak preview... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Francesco. Lars and then Guntram, and then we talk to Natasha there. Uh, to Lars first, and then to... Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you, Lars. Well, got formally with the Commission. Uh, you know, I commend you for having written a book as being an insider and being concerned about the legitimacy of, of uh, central banks and their, their power. But, you know... To quote uh, Winston Churchill on his head, where he says, you know, democracy is the worst of all systems except the others, I would say uh, the democracy is the best of all systems except enlightened dictatorship. And isn't the fact that you have central bankers and their power is an example of enlightened dictatorship, where there are checks and balances even within your, your system. We see the discussion inside the ECB between the Hawks and the Doe's. You see it inside the Federal Reserve. And so there are checks and balances, and, and there are enlightened ones. Uh, and so you don't get these uh, extreme kinds of, of uh, decisions as you were referring to. For example, we need to have excessive inflation, or we don't want stability financial system and things like that. So there are checks and balances. And the question is, what would we have seen in the situation where we had Bernanke in the financial crisis if he didn't have the powers? What would we have seen in terms of the, we've discussed this already with Margaret Raggy not saying take it and do what it takes. Uh, what would have been the situation if they were saying, well, we can't act without legitimacy. We need to know exactly where the politics is. So I think it's all very good to try to define ex ante what you should do or shouldn't do. But it's a little bit like the stability of the growth pact. You put up some nice rules and when reality turns different you just uh, need to do what's sensible. Can I take these two now? Oh, sure, if you want. Okay. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me do that one first. So, um, and I'm going to do them in reverse order. So the stability in the growth pact so what one has to be aware of in anything is, is incentive compatibility matters enormously. And the worst kind of pacts are pacts where everyone has incentives in the short run to agree to it, but don't have incentives to comply in the long run. And actually, I think a moment's thought would have revealed that about the stability and growth pact. And I remember thinking, yes, of course everyone's going to sign up to that because that's what you need to do to get to the end of the week. That's not the same as making a credible commitment to um, comply um, with it. The, I'm going to get to the, your big point in a second, but you made the point about Ben, what would have happened. Um, you mentioned Ben. What's interesting is you don't mention either president. Think, think, think about who the face 
of tackling the 1930s problems are, it's F.D. Roosevelt. Um, and both in terms of the reconstruction of finance and the macroeconomic response, who is the face in America um, of handling this crisis? It's a troika of Hank Paulson, Ben, and, and Tim Geithner. This is absolutely remarkable. And I, it, maybe it can be explained because it was the transition from George W. Bush to um, President um, Obama. But that's not obviously the case. I mean, and just at the, just at the level of description, something, something massive has happened over 80 or 90 years that, that um, the public it was no longer a norm that the president would um, present this to the American people, with consequences, I think. I think the American people understood what was being done in the 30s much better than they understood this time, because too, too few people knew who Ben was compared with who, knowing who President Roosevelt was. Um, I think you're preaching a form of undemocratic liberalism, and you are right that I um, oppose that. But actually, the book isn't an exercise in um, normative analysis of that, of that kind. Its, it's, it's kind of methodological structure is, if these are the um, non-monolithic values of democracy and the rule of law and of constitutionalism, and which is why there are chapters on that, then um, can we have the kind of system that you describe? And the book isn't, I personally don't think we should. It's that given my understanding of our society's values, that would not command um, legitimacy. So, it, and, and, and if I am right in my description, you, you are a revolutionary. And, and revolutionaries obviously don't start off with legitimacy. They seek to gain it um, by overturning the political order and substituting um, a, a new one. Um, to, on the ECB, um, I think quite a lot could be done actually by, by, um, by completing, filling out the constitutional structure in all sorts of ways. Uh, I mean actually quite an awful lot could be done probably. But one thing couldn't be done because of the, and this isn't a criticism, this is a description. Um, the, because the independence of the ECB is in the treaty, it can't be suspended. Whereas actually what would happen in a normal nation state facing absolute kind of Armageddon of some kind is that monetary independence would be suspended through the passing of a law just as the gold standard was um, suspended a number of times in the 19th century. And the interesting thing when people discuss the gold standard is they always discuss the, the first level rule, and that was not what the gold standard really was. The, gold, what the, the real rule in the gold standard was what became the precedent for the circumstances in which it would be suspended and the circumstances in which it would be reasserted. Um, it's easy to follow a rule in normal circumstances. It's, only, it's always what happens in extraordinary circumstances that is, that is interesting. And whether it's the United States or the United Kingdom or Japan um, or, or Germany pre-Maastricht, that could all be done. I don't mean that it, it very, very extreme circumstances, but it could not be done um, in the euro area because you'd never get unanimity to, 
um, with the referenda, et cetera, to suspend independence. That means that the challenge of building um, a constitutional structure that is robust to the very worst states of the world is tremendously hard. Um, now, actually, in actual fact, of course, there are some easy wins, and that's what people should concentrate on first. But putting oneself in a position, the same position as a, as a nation state, um, would be formidably um, difficult. Um, John, and, uh, John, do you have something to add for this? Or is there something you'd like to add? Or we can go on to the next question. We can come back if you like. Uh, so, good job. And uh, Natasha, then. And first well, I, <coughs> I wanted to uh, follow up on, on the previous question and uh, tease you a little bit by saying that uh, the book is, of course, a very Anglo Saxon book. And uh, uh, I think if. Um, let me sort of push you on, t on two points. I mean, one is. I think the, uh, uh, that in, in global society, if you look around the world, um, the belief that uh, representative um, democracy in the Anglo-Saxon style is the best model for the future um, is certainly declining, while um, support for a more technocratic-led, um, expert-led, of course power-led system a la China um, is globally increasing. And so, in a sense, you, you set a very strong point uh, on, on the Anglo-Saxon side, and I, I was wondering whether, whether you wanted to comment on, on that, that, that conflict of, of the systems that we are seeing. That's now, true. I guess the second point... It's a French, it's a French thing, too. Yes. So, so the, 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 Would you react to that? Yes. Would react to that? Democracy is not a purely Anglo-Saxon. No. Well, no, the way... Okay, so, so no, but that's... That, no, no, but that's my... No, that, that's, but that's my, my, my second point is on, I mean, I, I missed a little bit in your description sort of a, a deeper discussion of constitutional limits to um, independent, independent agents. Um, and, you know, if I, if I think of um, uh, the European continent, I mean, the, the con more the continent, I mean, there's very strong constitutional limits on certain functions of independent agents. Um, giving big independence, but also limiting uh, their, uh, their powers. Um, and, uh, and I think these constitutional limits were, were given with, um, with great care and uh, quite deliberately, um, and often uh, um, uh, with a double function, you mentioned the Bundesbank uh, example quite prominently, to limit, the, uh, to limit the power of the institution, but also, even more important, to, to limit the influence of politics on, on that institution. And, you know, I wonder, in your discussion of the ECB, um, you know, I felt a little bit, at the end of the day, um, the reason why the ECB acted too late on quantitative easing and so on and so forth um, is probably not a result of, of its independence, but rather a result of excessive politicization due to its structure and you know the fact that we have all the national governors sitting there essentially uh, defending their, their national positions. So, so I, I guess my, my view would, would be on the ECB. It has actually too little independence or it has the wrong governance structure. I mean, we, we would need a more technocratic ECB with a smaller governing council that actually deliberates in the interest of the Eurozone and not in the interest of finding the, the lowest common denominator among 19 different member states. And also because Guntram's my host and all of that. Um, um, 
So I, I agree it would be a good idea for the governing body of the ECB to be smaller. Um, I have my own view. I, think, I too think that QE was too late, no hindsight in that. I kind of version to it at Sintra. You can never tell from outside. I thought it was more to do with um, um, the overhang of the OMT challenge. Um, it seemed to me that that kind of um, could have played a part as well. These aren't mutually um, exclusive. Um, the book is an exercise in constitutionalism with a small um, C. My, my, I present my principles for delegation, I think, in chapter 12 as, as um, an exercise in trying to, urging people to flesh out the constitutional constraints around um, independent agencies. In, in some polities that would be done legally, so that I, in, I urge a, a revival of the non-delegation doctrine of a, a particular kind for the United States. In others it would be done more as a, um, a political norm that would be true in my country. But I agree with you um, about about that. The, the, the point that you make about maybe democracy isn't the best thing, this is, I think my response is the, is the same. My, my book isn't about, I mean, first of all, I, I must underline that I don't think that representative democracy, that, that the Anglo-Saxon countries, whatever they are, um, have, have any kind of monopoly claims to, to this. I mean, my own country, um, kind of move gradually from representative government to what we call um, democracy without the kind of ideological ferment that occurred in either France or the United States. And so there are different paths to representative democracy. But my point isn't that um, representative democracy is the best. I mean, I might think that outside the book but that's not what's going on inside the book. What's going on inside the book is that it's our system of, of, of government. And it may well be that we're suffering, unlike Habermas' claim in the 1970s, it may be that we really are now suffering a legitimation crisis. And, and, as we, and perhaps we should move to technocracy. But the book isn't about that. The book is about, um, given the values we have, um, Assuming that representative democracy enjoys legitimacy, how could independent agencies enjoy a form of derivative legitimacy? Um, that, that's kind of what's going on in the, in the book. And I think it's completely open for anyone to say, well, you're right, but that's not going to work because it actually isn't going to deliver good enough of results. I, I mean, uh, my best guess, and I do touch on this slightly in the book, is that I think the great strength of representative democracy is the one that I've mentioned, of it separates how we feel about government from how we feel about the system of government. I don't think the Chinese system does have that, um, um, almost by definition. The other thing is that I think what democracy essentially is, but this is a system, in part, well, one of the many things it is, it's a system of government by trial and error. And what delegating to an insulated agency is, is it is suspending the exercise of trial and error. It's saying we're not going to have trial and error, but the trial is over. We're going to lock that in for the time being. And then your point about constitution, both of constitutionalists, both of you, is how deeply do you entrench it? All law, all law is a commitment device. Common law in Anglo-Saxon countries, obviously all statute laws 
our commitment devices, because all statutes can be, can, can be amended and, and repealed, but, the, but there are higher transaction costs, political transaction costs for, for doing so. The ECB has very deep entrenchment because it's done at, at treaty level, and I'm not, that's just a thing. I mean, it's a, bit, a very important thing, though, that makes it different from other central banks, well, from many other central banks, not, not all. Perhaps two elements I'd like to add. Um, one is um, talking about uh, the dynamics of governance uh, of, for instance, the Governing Council of the ECB. Um, if, if we're at it, let's also include the dynamics of the SSM. Um, because um, uh, they're, uh, you know, um, let's say political re representation of national authorities, non-intervention behavior could be even much more harmful uh, when it is about uh, supervising banks than uh, when it is about monetary policy. Um, and secondly, um, uh, when talking about legitimacy and representative democracy and um, delegation of powers to agencies uh, how, and how they derive their mandate from um, let's say the elected politicians, I think you sometimes, um, uh, you, you spend a lot of time on, on that relationship, but you do not emphasize, and I wonder whether that's what you mean, um, that it is a two-way street. Uh, yes, uh, you set up an agency, it's a constitutional act, uh, and it's there, it needs to meet, uh, those, those, those constitutional documents need to, to meet requirements, need to be clear, etc. Um, but it doesn't end there, um, because if politicians step back the moment the yeah. agency actually starts, you know, fulfilling its mandate, um, and um, and that is, I think, another thing uh, that that um, um, makes life so difficult for the ECB. Uh, it's that uh, it, it's created. It has this very strong independence. It did step up to the plate, uh, but when it does, um, you know, uh, there there is this two-way street that is sometimes not coming back from the political side. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I would mention the Econ Committee of the Parliament in this respect, and I, I've. Over the years, I've had very close friends that have been a member of it, and I've worked closely with it when I was in office, but it's too big to do effective oversight hearings. I kind of said that I wondered whether the governing council was too big. Well, the Econ Committee is definitely too big for effective oversight hearings, and I worry that this affects attitudes to, to, to testimony. It's... problem with the SSM, the yes, yeah. yes. Exactly. I mean, it's. Sorry? I think that's a very good. I think that's a very. I think that's a very good thing, actually. I think the kind of secret sessions overcome the kind of transparency problem a bit. But it's the same with. It's, this isn't a uniquely um, European problem. Congressional oversight hearings of the Fed are not terribly good, partly because the committees of the Senate and the, and, and the House are so very, very um, big that what you can't get is um, exchange. And I think this over time, I, I claim no virtue in, for the Bank of England people in this at all, it, it kind of affects attitudes. We, when I was at the Bank of England, we thought of our testimony to the House of Commons Select Committee, a body of, I don't know, 12, 13 people, 
as, as underpinning our legitimacy. I thought it was the most important thing we did. I thought everything else was quite straightforward, really, and just technocratic stuff. Whereas actually going and explaining yourself and finding um, ways of explaining yourself in, in a language that would work with the public struck me as hugely, hugely important. But, but they had incentives, partly because of the nature of the Westminster Parliament, they had incentives to make that a big occasion for them as well. Um, that's much less so in either econ or um, um, the committees in, in Congress. Jean, you always wanted to? No, it, it was just a comment on what Guntram said about the um, independence of the, uh, the ECB. The thing is that, um, I mean, the, the fact that the Governing Council is composed the way it is and that you know, all central banks are represented, in fact, is a quid pro quo for uh, a different form of accountability uh, that would uh, you know, give less power to the representation of national interests through the central banks and have a, a stronger form of accountability with the least parliamentary body. Uh, I mean, there's this, this the, the, the central bank is independent from the government, but it's not independent from the national interest as represented by the National Central Bank. Yeah. Although formally, obviously, yeah. it is, because they're supposed to be speaking for the URI as a whole. Yeah. But in real terms, that's not the case. Uh, and in fact, you, if you, you, you would like to have more independence from that, it would mean you would need to strengthen accountability in another way. You, you, you just wouldn't yeah. move to, a, to a just uh, an ECB run by, by a board of six, uh, you know, without uh, accountability, uh, stronger accountability mechanisms. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. 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 Okay, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, uh, there's more questions here, but I can't accommodate you because they, we are actually close to the time. If the, you have a last word that you wanted to say, uh, Paul. That... Uh, I, I... No, only, only, only thank you. I, I thought the, the, the questions are fantastic because they, they forced me to explain kind of what's going on in the book in terms of its, it, it aims not to be normatively prescriptive in an absolute sense, but conditional on an estimation of what our values are, tracing out the... Um, and actually the biggest challenge to the book would be, no, those aren't our values. There are these other things that are values. And in a sense, that's the debate. The debate I think we need is what do our values entail for the structure of the administrative state, given that Madison and Montesquieu and, and Locke and Hegel didn't tell us the answer. <laughs> thank you, Paul, very much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much.